Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 186, Return to Resistance. Now, there are no new patrons this month, but as always, a big thank you to everyone who supports the show. On another note, I purchased all the books I can find so far about kind of the Balkan Wars and World War I in the Balkans, but in case I missed any, you know, feel free to write in if you have any good suggestions on sources or books that you think would be helpful when I'm working on those episodes. I want to make sure they're as good as possible. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we covered the year 1909, as the young Turk government was very nearly brought down by a counter-revolution that briefly took over Constantinople. However, an army that oddly enough included Bulgarians under Sindansky retook the city, replaced the sultan, and reinstalled the young Turk government. At the same time, negotiations over Bulgaria's independence finally concluded with Russia shouldering some of the financial burdens in an attempt to repair relations with Bulgaria. Ferdinand personally had incidents with the emperors of both Germany and Austria-Hungary while greatly enjoying a trip to Paris, as Bulgaria continued to play both sides of the two great European alliance blocs that were show slowly kind of shaping themselves. Now, it's early 1910, and we begin on February the 24th in Russe, when a Bulgarian man named Jordan Stefanov and an ethnic Turkish girl named Safet Mehmedova visited a doctor to obtain permission to get married. Safet claimed to be 18 years old, but she was actually 16, and was already three months pregnant. The two were given the document they needed, but crucially, Safet also intended to convert to orthodoxy and to take the Slavic name Ruska. When the girl's father learned about the pregnancy and the intention to marry and convert, he threw her out of the house, called her a whore, and just generally cursed her. However, when the local mufti heard about the incident, he went even further than the father, going to the town mayor to argue against the marriage, claiming that allowing both it and the conversion amounted to the, quote, trampling of the Turkish religion, end quote, as well as pointing out that Safet was a minor. As a result, a court revoked their permission to get married within a few days. Now, at this moment, Tsar Ferdinand was about to have a meeting with the Ottoman Sultan, and the last thing the Bulgarian government wanted was this kind of an incident to inflame tensions with the Ottoman Empire. So, Safet was returned to her parents' house, but soon a crowd of local Bulgarians gathered with the intent to steal her from her parents. Ironically, the whole groom stealing a bride from her parents' house is still a tradition in Bulgarian weddings today, though it's more like a show today, but... uh, Yeah, interesting, that's still a thing that happens. The crowd eventually got so big that police decided to move the girl to the police station for her safety. But eventually, over a thousand people gathered at the police station and basically managed to get her out. So, with that, the two got married. And a squadron of cavalry was sent to Rousse to, well, you know, help keep calm. And it ended up getting into an argument with a crowd of local Turks and some stones were thrown and things escalated and soon shots were fired. 
All this quickly escalated into an enormous brawl between citizens and soldiers, which left 24 dead and 70 injured. Some reports claim that the Minister of the Interior was drunk at a casino and loudly ordered soldiers to restore order with violence, and the Bulgarian population in Ruse, as well as around the country, was generally furious over the government's handling of the situation. Now, that minister, the Minister of the Interior, who ironically enough was the same man who kind of lured Aleko Konstantinov to his death, was demoted by the government as a result. Now, even the married couple, unfortunately, did not get to enjoy anything resembling a happy ending as the husband will soon die in a war that, you know, we'll get to, and the wife will die of tuberculosis. But as a whole, the incident points to the lingering differences and resentments between Bulgarians and Turks, which still had the potential to erupt into violence. Now, despite this horrific incident, Ferdinand's meeting with the Sultan went well and hoped and helped to kind of improve relations with the Ottomans at this tense time. But while high-level relations may have been improving, the experience of Bulgarians actually living in the Ottoman Empire was quite different. Now, I didn't cover this last time because I only found out about this incident during my research for this episode, but back in November 1909, a man was killed in Bitola in Macedonia. Originally called Jovo Kovanovich, I think, he was a Montenegrin anarchist who had fled to Bulgaria after being sentenced to death for planning to kill the king of Montenegro. He had then fought and was wounded in the Inlinden uprising before working with Sendansky and helping the Ottoman government combat the remnants of the MRO from re-establishing themselves. So this is why some former MRO members decided to kill him. This resulted in the Ottomans arresting 40 Bulgarians, though all were later acquitted. In response to all of this, a Bulgarian member of the Ottoman par parliament named Pancho Dorev protested to the Ottoman Minister of Internal Affairs. He soon also expressed anger over the Ottoman resettling of Muslim refugees from Bosnia and Herzegovina, which you remember had just been taken over by Austria-Hungary, into Bulgarian villages in the Skopje region. Dorev had been a member of the Union of Bulgarian Constitutional Clubs, that short-lived political party of the MRO's former left wing, and now wanted to form a new Bulgarian political party with the approval of the Young Turks. And basically, yeah, he found very little support amongst former MRO members. You know, everyone by this point was fairly jaded about the, the Young Turks and their you know, promises to allow this kind of activity. The reason was that in light of the Ottoman banning Bulgarian political parties and growing Ottoman campaigns to disarm Bulgarians in Macedonia, as you can see, you know, many former associates of Sandansky in the left wing of the MRO decided that it was actually time to instead return to armed struggle and not form a new political party. And there was more and more of a move to reunite with the former right wing of the MRO and start working together again. Those working to rebuild the MRO sent the following message out to various revolutionary committees, which still existed in some form. Quote, VMRO was deceived in its hopes by the Young Turks. Now it is rebuilding its personnel and starting to fight against tyranny again. All fighters are in place. Any hesitation and infidelity will be punished by death. Behind us stands Bulgaria with its powerful army. End quote. In May 1910, the new organization was founded at a meeting in Sofia, called the Bulgarian People's Macedonian Odrina Revolutionary Organization, or VRMORO. 
I'm just going to refer to it as VMRO or VMRO uh, for short because, yeah, as we know, it, it's useful to take the MRO and now the VMRO and just sort of shorten those names because the names change a lot and they get very long and very complicated and it gets to be a bit of a mouthful to just talk about them. So despite this new form of the organization being formed mostly from former left-wing members, its central aim was taken from the former right-wing namely autonomy for Macedonia and Adrianople, which would eventually lead to political unification with Bulgaria. In fact, this new group specifically criticized the former left wing for seeing autonomy for Macedonia as a goal instead of as a means to the end of political unification with Bulgaria. They denounced the decision to remove the Bulgarian character from the struggle. But despite agreeing with the former right wing members for now, attempts to join forces with them are still kind of in progress, and negotiations over how to structure the organization are dragging on. Unsurprisingly, attempts to convince Sandansky's faction to join are going nowhere, and they eventually just denounce Sandansky, publishing, quote, Jan Sandansky has completely surrendered himself to the service of the Turkish government and is an enemy of the revolutionary struggle, end quote. So, all this may be a bit confusing, so we can recap here. There are now three factions of the former MRO. The former right-wing, the former left-wing still aligned with Sandansky, and the former left-wing that has reformed the VMRO and is now attempting unite, to unite all three, though they seem to have kind of given up on Sandansky, and now just the former left and right-wings are trying to come together. Interestingly, even though Sandansky was still refusing to back down from his support for the Young Turks, by this point, he was increasingly isolated with that opinion. By later in 1910, both leftist Bulgarian political parties decided that it was time to abandon any optimism about the nature of the Young Turk regime and to just publicly denounce it. This was all coming at the same moment Bulgaria was reckoning with the state of the Macedonian movement in the wake of Bulgaria's full independence, and many actually blamed Ferdinand. I'll quote, Constantine's biography of Ferdinand to explain how all this is happening. He writes, quote, Each new outrage by the young Turks in Macedonia brought increased popular pressure in Bulgaria on Ferdinand and the government. He was blamed for having sacrificed Macedonia in order to obtain the royal crown. On the first anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, a leading Bulgarian newspaper stated, quote, the anniversary of independence, which is being celebrated today, merely commemorates Ferdinand of Coburg's victory over his own people. But let us be patient. The people will have their revenge. End internal quote. In October 1909, Ferdinand told the French foreign minister that he felt a magic circle enclosing him from all sides. Quote, My position has never been more difficult. Soon it will become untenable because my Bulgarians will never forgive me for the collapse of their national aspirations, end internal quote. In reporting these words, the French foreign minister commented, quote, Unfortunately, the Tsar is quite right about this. Recent Bulgarian opinion has judged him harshly. Grave symptoms of uneasiness and discontent can be observed within the army, end internal quote. All Ferdinand's efforts to solve the Macedonian problem by diplomatic means had failed. The major powers simply did not want to know and bombarded Sofia with stern warnings against military action. Inside Bulgaria, considerations of European diplomacy were mere abstractions. 
The only reality was the suffering of the Macedonians and the restoration of the great Bulgaria of the Treaty of San Stefano, end quote. So it gives you some idea of the, uh, we talked about before, the very difficult position that Ferdinand is in. Again, as Constantine put it well, European diplomacy was an abstraction to most Bulgarians. They didn't appreciate the difficulties and the challenges that Ferdinand and his governments were facing in trying to get some support. And that essentially, you know, taking Macedonia wasn't uh, as simple a matter as just marching in there. So again, though European diplomacy may have been an abstraction to us Bulgarians, its consequences were very real. Satelova points about how Bulgaria's hard line on Macedonia had made building lasting alliances incredibly difficult. Despite Bulgaria's best efforts, the young Turks were cracking down hard on Bulgarians. Serbia was once again ramping up its activities in Macedonia, and Sofia could not count on a single one of the great powers as a consistent ally. The problem was that maintaining that hardline stance left Bulgaria alone and vulnerable, but building a strong alliance with any of its neighbors would require making compromises that the Macedonian hardliners would never accept. For example, even though Russia had stepped up to help Bulgarian independence happen, they refused to sign a secret alliance because they would not support Bulgaria's desire to annex Macedonia and Adrianople. So, Bulgaria was stuck in a dangerous position as events around it progressed quickly. Okay, now a lighter bit of history. That summer, along with Crown Prince Boris and Prince Cyril, Ferdinand flew in an airplane in Brussels, Belgium. This made Ferdinand the first Bulgarian citizen and the first ever crowned monarch to fly in an airplane, showing his great enthusiasm for science and technology. For context, the first ever flight by the Wright brothers in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina had happened less than seven years earlier, so this was still very, very new technology. The event also made Ferdinand excited to build an aerodrome in Sofia and help develop air technology back in Bulgaria. And indeed, in just over a year, a Bulgarian air force was formed and the first airplane flies over Sofia. You can find a blurb about it from the New York Times in the blog post for this episode. Otherwise, the summer saw some railway news as 48 kilometers of line opened from Tornovold to Plachkovsky, Plachkovsky, I think is the name of that town. Uh, and this marked the first stage of a line that will eventually cross the Balkan mountains and connect Bulgaria's medieval capital of Velikotornovol to Starozagora. Just four days after this line opens, a rail connection between Skopje and the Bulgarian border opens, but the Ottomans refused to allow the line to continue to Sofia. And, well, you know, future spoiler alert here, uh, Sofia and Skopje don't share a rail link even today, over a century later, though there's occasional rumblings that one might be in the works, but uh, yeah, that problem's not getting solved anytime soon. In September, the Alexander Malinov government was dissolved and then reformed with a new cabinet, although I couldn't really find any details why this happened. I guess they just needed a shakeup or maybe Fernand wanted uh, a bit of a shakeup. But yeah, that's the, the last bit of political news for the year. And to wrap it up, 19, throughout the year of 1910, the Central Market Hall in downtown Sofia, known as the Hali, was built. Uh, it's kind of, have you ever been to Budapest? I used to live near one of these in Budapest, these you know, big covered markets with lots of little shops in them. 
it has been that for a long time, but now it is currently closed and is going to become a big supermarket, which lots of people are upset about. But uh, yeah, that's a whole other issue. Otherwise, if you'll recall from a few episodes previously, former Prime Minister Petr Gudev, uh, who was in power for about two years and was put under investigation for corruption, well, yeah, he's that investigation is now fully underway, so we'll have to see what happens with his corruption. And Bulgaria completed the 1910 census. So, what did the census teach us? Well, in the five years since the previous census, Bulgaria's population had increased by about 300,000 to around 4.3 million. The percentage of Bulgarians in the country increased by about 1.6% with the total number of Turks and Greeks in the country decreasing by tens of thousands. It's not surprising, right? We've talked about the violence against some Greek communities and the fact that, well, yeah, since Bulgaria's independence, the country has been a, a less and less hospitable place for Turks to, to live. You know, earlier in this episode, we talked about this uh, massacre uh, or this kind of you know violence of the Ruse blood wedding and things. So, yeah. Bulgarian populations going up, Turks and Greeks going down. Most of the other numbers didn't change that much. You know, Romani people, Jews, folks like that. But that was kind of the, the headline numbers I could find from the census data. A few other quick events to round out the year. In 1910, Montenegro proclaimed itself a kingdom, upgrading from a principality, just as Bulgaria had done. But far larger was the breakout of a major Albanian revolt against the Ottomans from May until July. Much like with Bulgarians elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire, Albanians were upset with attempts by the Young Turks to further centralize power and implement new taxes. Now, the Albanians were ironically supported by the Serbian government, which wanted to use this revolt to further weaken Ottoman power in Europe. Now, while the Albanian uprising saw some success, it was eventually put down with great brutality. The Ottomans also reversed some of the recently granted concessions to the Albanians as a result, particularly in the realms of language and culture. This revolt, along with the reality that many Bulgarians were returning to armed resistance, were kind of helped convince the young Turk government to begin moving away from Ottomanism. You know, this idea of, okay, maybe the Ottoman Empire can be revitalized by granting more minority rights and becoming more pluralistic. Now the Young Turks are seeing, okay, maybe that's not going to work because when we give people minority rights, they just want more minority rights. They want more autonomy and all these kinds of things. So the Young Turks are beginning to shift more towards a kind of nationalistic uh, policy of more Turkish domination. So as we enter into 1911, February sees a general assembly for the Skopje and Bitola districts of the new VMRO, uh, which sees that group finally resolve its differences and formally unite the former right and left wing members uh, under the leadership of Todor Alexandrov. So now all the former MRO factions except Sandansky's people were reunited under a single organization. Early 1911, also saw the National Assembly propose amendments to the Constitution. One basic change was to change Ferdinand's title to Tsar, so he would no longer technically be violating the Constitution, as uh, the agrarians have helpfully pointed out in, uh, in previous kind of National Assembly groups. But on the more practical side, new ministries for trade, industry, labor, along with the uh, Ministry of Agriculture, a Ministry of Natural Properties, and kind of other buildings, roads, and improvements, uh, 
a Ministry of Railroads, Posts and Telegraphs, all these new departments are created via this new kind of set of constitutional up upgrades. So, you know, Bulgaria is basically further modernizing and going to get a series of ministries that can kind of focus on some of the challenges of modernization for things that, you know, some of these uh, technologies were basically absent from Bulgaria when the constitution was written. So there was no reason to create a ministry around it, but that has changed. Time has passed. So to this end, the Bulgarian Central Cooperative Bank was also founded about this time with the aim of developing cooperatives, little co-ops, to finance various projects. Finally, around this time, a new electoral law saw two regions in Bulgaria switch from a majoritarian model, uh, i.e. one where the candidate with 51% wins everything, to a proportional model, where seats are allocated based on the percentage of the vote. And this is kind of a, an early experiment to see how this goes, so we'll have to see whether other regions want to make that switch. But in general, this kind of a shift means that you're going to get greater representation for a greater number of views and opinions, but it also means the country is harder to govern, particularly, you know, with Ferdinand's technique of kind of strong arming and, and using some shenanigans to get his people elected. You know, when you don't have a majoritarian system, it gets harder to use tactics like that to run things because you get less of a kind of boost by being the winning party. Despite all these new laws and constitutional changes, Ferdinand had, by early 1911, decided that it was time for a change in government. The Alexander Malinov government's hard line on Macedonia was making it difficult for Ferdinand to build the kind of anti-Ottoman alliance that, well, a lot of people in the Balkans were looking at creating now, so he turned to our old friend Ivan Geshov and his People's Party to form a new more run-friendly government that would also focus a bit less on foreign policy, be a, less, a bit less hardline on Macedonia, and would therefore give Ferdinand greater diplomatic flexibility. Now, of course, if you recall, Ferdinand still hated Geshov, in part because of his tremendous wealth and independence, but an attempt by the Tsar to ensure the new government would not be run by him failed, and basically Ferdinand was forced to accept Geshov as prime minister, sort of as is. So yeah, Ferdinand wanted to be a bit more in charge, a bit more pulling the strings, but ultimately he didn't have a good alternative to Geshoff, and so he had to kind of swallow his pride. Now, Geshoff's vision was to create a very large and broad-based governing coalition, uh, which would remain in power long enough to have some real accomplishments, rather than just working on a few things, only to see their successor undo all the things they just did. So to make that happen, Geshoff in his new government formed a kind of alliance with the People's Party or between his People's Party and the Progressive Liberal Party. The two groups had some disagreements, but they managed to work through them. And between them, they could they could kind of call on a fairly large governing majority and they could really get some things done. The first priority was obviously to call for elections for a fifth grand national assembly to actually go, you know, push through all the constitutional changes that had just been you know, proposed. Elections were held in June, and you'll be shocked to know that the governing coalition won a massive majority, which, as we know, pretty much always happens in Bulgaria. And the Grand National Assembly convened a few weeks later and approved the changes proposed earlier in the year. Now, all that said, it didn't go entirely smoothly. The agrarians, along with the socialists and other opposition parties, decided to make a scene to demonstrate their disapproval. When Ferdinand entered the Grand National Assembly to open its proceedings, Stambuliski yelled, quote, Deputies, 
According to the Constitution, the prince does not have the right to open the Grand National Assembly, end quote, before he was swiftly cut off when the pro-monarchy majority loudly drowned him out with applause. Ferdinand was visibly shaken by all the tumult. Remember, he quite understandably feared assassination, and this kind of a public challenge no doubt reminded him that he faced you know, some pretty real opposition. Uh, so once Tsar Ferdinand left, the two, the kind of pro and anti-monarchy factions, shouted and denounced each other as traitors and the like, but eventually things calmed down and the assembly concluded its business. Besides what I mentioned earlier, one crucial change was that the constitution was amended to allow the Tsar to enter into secret treaties without the knowledge or approval of the National Assembly, something which was seen as vital for the task of building that anti-Ottoman coalition to kick the Ottoman Empire out of Europe once and for all. Because, well, you know, Ferdinand needs to have a lot of flexibility in order to do this, and so, and you know, he's going to have to maybe make some unpopular compromises, and so if the National Assembly had to approve those, it would take a really long time, and if the National Assembly had to be informed, then every single time information about this would leak, cause public furor, you know, it would make it impossible for Bulgaria to really build this coalition. Because, again, remember, the only way Bulgaria can really gain firm alliances with its neighbors is by compromising on things that it has never allowed itself to compromise on. So this seems kind of necessary. Now, ultimately, again, this, this new coalition was a main goal for the government. Ironic because Geshev was hardly a crusading nationalist eager to win glory in a war. He was more of the prudent banker type. But you know, he was willing to sort of let Ferdinand take the lead on this and to, you know, do what he could to make that reality happen. Because for all his, you know, prudish bankerness, Geshev still did want Macedonia to be Bulgarian. In fact, Geshev was largely focused on internal affairs and again, did leave diplomacy to Ferdinand. And there wasn't a lot he could do because Ferdinand hardly kept Geshev even informed about all the foreign policy work he was doing anyways. So, you know, if, if Geshev was going to get involved, it'd be rather hard because, you know, one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. Geshev's speeches at this time actually barely mention foreign policy, instead focusing on his plans to reform fiscal policy introduce a progressive tax system to reduce the tax burden on peasants, something he does manage to do, and find new ways to promote industry and agriculture, which are basically all his pet, you know, pet uh, projects, his kind of favorite interests and uh, issues. Now, Geshev did implement some electoral reforms, expanding the that test of a proportional system in the hope that it would make parties more ideological and less factional, because it's something Geshev has talked about for a while, that he sees some major problems in Bulgarian democracy. And again, this is, I've talked before how a lot of the issues we've seen in Bulgarian democracy during this period are remarkably similar to the ones today, where political parties don't necessarily talk about ideology that much. They don't talk about policy that much. They tend to be very factional. It's based, you know, the, the, the kind of basis of the parties is opposition to someone and maybe kind of a personal backing of like it's the parties are, are built around singular personalities and just whether you like that personality or not and opposition and things instead of, you know, instead of, yeah, a set of kind of concrete policy proposals. And, you know, in this era and I think today, a lot of the parties, it can be difficult to even, you know, for the average Bulgarian to remember what policy goals they stand for. But ironically, 
This kind of a proportional system, as I mentioned earlier, would also reduce Ferdinand's ability to control Bulgarian politics. So, you know, it's interesting. We'll have to see how that plays out. But before all of that, this new governing coalition has to actually win the 1911 elections. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very weird how all this works, but, you know, Ferdinand sort of appoints them and so they get to start to create a government, but that's before they even have a parliamentary majority. So they get to start running the government first and then have an election to confirm that government later. It's, it's just very weird. As someone who has studied like, uh, you know, political science and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time looking at how governments can function and stuff, the way Bulgaria works in this way, this time period is very weird. Now, that new governing coalition did indeed win 52% of the vote, so they did quite well. And the agrarians once again won the second highest number of votes, getting nearly 16%. Though this is only about 1% more than 1908, so it's not a huge jump. But this was less than had been expected in part because the actions of the agrarians sort of opposing and yelling at Ferdinand during the Grand National Assembly led many to brand them as traitors, extremists, and basically disloyal Bulgarians. So yeah, people expected the agrarians to do better, but it seems that all the grandstanding there hurt them. Their performance was also hurt by greater than typical kind of government actions that were designed to suppress them, even blocking Stambuliski from being a candidate. So yeah, again, unsurprising, all the, the kind of pro-monarchist parties are very upset at the agrarians. They don't like their rising power. They see them as a threat. And so they're taking greater actions than normal to suppress them. Other than that, the broad and narrow socialists combined only got about 3%. So yeah, they're still a tiny, tiny, tiny faction. And well, that's where we'll finish today. Bulgaria has a new government that's focusing on prudent economic and political issues while Tsar Ferdinand is playing politics and getting all the approvals he needs to lay the groundwork to start a war against the Ottomans. Nearly all the former MRO factions have finally united and are taking up arms again to oppose the increasingly tyrannical Young Turks, while an Albanian revolt has been crushed. Overall, while Ivan Geshov and his government are looking at taxes and fiscal policies, the stage is being set for something far different. A war. Next time, we'll see the final pieces fall into place as one of the great powers attacks the Ottoman Empire unexpectedly and the Balkan states finally set aside their differences to strike back at their former oppressor. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com. And I'll see you in the next one.